direct a peace theater. Someone free me from my limbo. These hosts are tormenting me. Yeah. 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 Okay. We've never done a real intro. <laughs> we never really do an intro. This is Director Peace Theater. Oh. Like yeah. the guy said. You did. Uh, where we talk, we, we talk shop about director speak. Um, yes. Yeah. That's He's, that's about it. That's yeah. what this podcast has become, right? I mean, we just use director old, words to talk about director speak. Yeah, with just two old bears talking about, oh. yep. you know, the modes of production and such. <laughs> we are old bears. Just ancient bears over here. We're getting up there, man. <laughs> you got it, dude. Don't I know it. My birthday's coming up real soon, and it's a big, big number. And we're gonna yeah. we're gonna get out of hibernation, and it's gonna be great. <laughs> we're gonna feast on all the seals. It's yeah. gonna be great. Ooh, I'm we're, gonna we kill are, so many seals. We are bears. Yep. Uh, yeah. So this is a so this is an Abe episode, Ooh. which means it's beautiful. Can't wait to see it's my its beauty. favorite types of episodes. <laughs> <laughs> I also so enjoy them. The t- you read the title, and this one is a little different for me. Uh, it's less of a thesis. Well, I mean, it's a thesis, but uh, I wanted to inspect, basically, we all kind of had the feeling of, like, you ever notice that the Harry Potter films, like the later ones, like the last four? four yeah. Yeah. They feel, like, um, dark, and uh, they look the same, and they look like other things happening in the zeitgeist in like the late 2000s and there's a reason why and i'm gonna go into it's not just that the story itself got darker that that was a great motivating reason for why films let's say would look dark uh but there's a lot of things going on in hollywood Mm. and a lot of people who were getting there essentially getting uh known for their type of look that harry potter mimics and i want to explain why uh, to anyone who has that question of why Harry Potter movies feel like, let's say, a Fincher movie. Yeah. And why they didn't before. I mean, right. I feel like people... I feel like it was. this was like actually almost a surface question. Like, when when, it, mm-hmm. when they came out, I, I definitely remember having the feeling, even before I went to film school, that was like, man, these really got heavy. Uh, like, yeah. they visually got heavy. And also, I feel like people were kind of talking about that at the time. Do I, am yeah, I remembering it, was it correctly? Immediately apparent because it's immediately it's a visual aspect. Yeah. And visual is something that humans are very good at identifying or acknowledging when they see it and being able to usually put words to what that means. Um, mm. so I'm gonna kinda go behind that and talk about like what the mechanizations of the industry and who was making stuff and why they were choosing to like ape those styles. Exciting. Um, so yeah, so I'm going to kind of, I'll look at all the films, but I kind of chose one just to make it easier, which is the sixth one, which is Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, yeah. which came out in 2009. Yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to examine that one and use it kind of as a litmus test for, you know, or an example, a signpost rather for, you know, this is why it went this way. This was the, uh, this was the movie that very famously as a book was spoiled by a t-shirt. You remember, mm-hmm. remember mm-hmm. they were like t-shirts mm-hmm. spoiling this book 
Uh, oh boy, but yeah. Also, yeah, I, did. I, want I, you... I didn't read Harry Potter until I'd seen those shirts. Oh, by the way, I want you to know so I got it in late in the game. I want you to know I worked at a Borders bookstore when they were when this book was coming out for presale, and we had mm-hmm. to stay open till midnight and sell really dumb versions of our drinks with Harry Potter titles while people bought Half Blood Prince, and I hated it thenceforth, my friend. Oh, actually, well, then I, didn't. You're I really perfect. liked the book. I really liked it a lot. Yeah. Well, you're perfect for this podcast, then. <laughs> yes, finally. Something yes, for me. <laughs> finally. Something for me. So <clears throat> I want to start with, uh, I want to start with, like, let's take a look at Half-Blood Prince. If you look at, like, the structure, the themes involved, the like, overall mood and style that it's evoking, and even some of the elements of the story itself... I think there's a fair argument that this is actually what has come to be called a neo-noir. I'm excited. And I'll get into exactly what that means. Because it's a lot of other things as well. Like it's a franchise film. It's a blockbuster. It's Even though it's dark, it's still kind of a children's movie. Because um, after Harry Potter got real dark, after Harry meets Voldemort in The Goblet of Fire... In fact, the visual style of the entire franchise, I would argue, changed in that graveyard during yeah. the Triwizard Tournament. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where uh, what's it, Robert Pattinson dies, mm. and the remaining films kind of just did that. Yeah. You know that darkness. It just the the film quality, like the way it looks and feels. It's ju- it's that graveyard. All the way till the end of the series. Well, you know, I, I, you also. I'm sure you're going to talk more about this, but. The last four Harry Potters were also the only ones directed by the same director. Yeah, and right? that's this guy. Yeah. This, this guy, yes. yeah. Correct. So- David Yates. Um, yeah, because there's a lot of different... Even the last movies, there, it's still a... There's a dysfunctional indie uh, type movie comes to uh, in my head when I think of Deathly Hollows. The end of the second Deathly yeah, Hollow yeah. movies has like a Lord of the Rings-esque battle. So it's like pulling all from all the all the places you know um which is you know i'd say that's typical for like a sweeping hero story in general uh, it's all over the place um but once harry's basically on his own and that starts in this movie you basically started to notice that these movies look like fincher films mm. or michael mann films and it's not just the color correction uh while the source material was getting darker, it seemed that our cinematic palette at this time, during the 2000s, specifically like mid to late 2000s, our appetites were getting darker. And this movie reflects how those styles were already just happening in Hollywood. And I want to speak to that. As always, most blockbusters are likely to be indicative of a change uh, through reflection of other movies and what's happening. Uh, happening around, you know, uh, indie films or just like more not important films, but films taken more seriously. And blockbusters are not always considered pioneers in their particular genre. I'd say that that's safe to say, right? Oh, yeah. I, I, most blockbuster movies are an amalgamation of changes. <clears throat> there are exceptions. Yeah. Uh, but especially like visually and stuff, like they're they're not usually breaking new ground no uh so there's like what's the name of the the that action movie that was shot i want to say in the philippines the raid that's like one of the rare exceptions yeah uh because it's technically a blockbuster movie but it is moving forward it's not an american movie that's true i know know this isn't an american movie but it's not like a western uh 
Hollywood type movie. Good counterpoint. Which this is. Yeah. Good counterpoint. No, I think you're I right. I want to make a note. I want to make a note though before we begin, because uh, I want to speak why I thought this was kind of timely, or why I'm talking about Harry Potter right now, which is, um, you know, a, just like a week ago, as of the recording of this stuff. There's like more unwelcome reminders on Twitter about how J.K. Rowling is still just carpet bombing trash opinions left and right. So I, with that, I decided to take a look at the films again to see like what was there because I hadn't seen them in a while. And I was going to look at how the films pushed like the disrespect for trans men and women and how it like set up its like gender uh, archetypes. Um, but frankly, it's no more or less what's happening throughout the 1990s and 2000s by many movies, in my opinion. And I think it's like a generational problem. And the fact, and its stupidity and outdatedness uh, won't really take a role in this particular examination, though it's extremely relevant to remember. And it's just as relevant as the Harry Potter's franchise was to culture and kids slash, you know, young adults in the 2000s. I wanted to say that up top, just yeah. so it's not like... That's why we're talking about Harry Potter. Abe decided to watch Harry Potter. Uh, but yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I want to talk about Neo Noir, though. It's unfortunate for her that she's chosen to to continue to voice these opinions because ultimately we, yeah. we may remember the series more for them in the long term than for the other incredible qualities that the series has. I mean, uh, yeah, I think that this this podcast isn't for you know social abe the white guy yeah, having yeah, his yeah. social opinions being heard as much um you know but the <laughs> you're absolutely right <laughs> i personally agree and uh this i want just to look at i think it's just that's the pat the passing of the guard that's old people being old and getting increasingly out of touch with even the people that they're speaking to you know, within yep. a matter of less than 10 years. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I want to talk about neo-noir and what neo-noir is, because I think that there's a lot of, there's still a lot of discussion about what that actually means. Um, and I would say that if you just go to Wikipedia or you just go to <clears throat> any film website that discusses uh, genres of films, you're going to look at in the 2000s, there were a lot of what is quote unquote called a neo-noir, including things like Think of Memento, Training Day, Old Boy, Collateral, Brick, Gone Baby Gone, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. All these films could be, can be described as noirs, but they have a lot of things that they are absolutely not noir about, and that's why we created a new term for it. And I'd say that the term was probably coined before the 2000s, I don't know, the first iteration of it, but it definitely became a thing. Uh, with some specific filmmakers and the themes and uh, you know conversations they wish to have with their movies, and therefore, and the fact that they did well, uh, made this kind of uh, positive feedback loop that made that the audience was more hungry for these kinds of darker themes. Um, I love that you're so including Training Day in this. I've never thought about. You wouldn't? No, no, no. I, I would. I, I've just never thought of training never day thought about it as this yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, it's uh, definitely. I might be neo-noir. wrong about this. I think neo noir actually goes all the way back to the '60s. Like, uh, I, like yeah. I think that's I think, the traditional dividing line. I could be wrong. About I mean, that. yeah, it's like a reaction to noir, which was pretty fairly dead in the '60s. Right. But you know, there's still noirs being made. But they still, but, they still made Clute. <clears throat> still made Clute. Let's talk about how people and critics define neo-noir. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And of course, you have to start that by talking about what noir is, and therefore how neo noir is that, and also not that. So, modern telling of let's start with like the story and the idea of the protagonist of a noir. Modern retellings of noir are not confined to like the femme fatale, like Ray Chandler esque narratives of classic noir. You know, where like a lady shows up at a doorstep and she's both going to be a foil for the, you know, protagonist, but also kind of ignite us on this like a thread of mystery that like we see through to the end. Um, Though it came to being, I would say neo-noir came to being from a love for those styles specifically and the narrative devices that noir kind of coined. It's, Kind of like in this generation, a kind of, they're kind of a love note for the darker themes of noir mysteries, and then how they're always uniquely suited for the protagonist. I think that that's very important. It's one of the main differences between modern mysteries and modern neo-noirs. It's not just a detective story about a detective solving a crime. It's often about a tortured main character finding their own identity through solving a crime. Usually that's because they're involved somehow or at the heart of the mystery or because it deals with the themes and the problems coming out of like where that protagonist is at their point at the starting point of the film and where they are at the end. Um, Let's talk about like, so why is neo noir a thing? Well, let's talk about narrative structures and devices, because this is the kind of stuff, this is the love note stuff. Often mysteries are very maze-like and deal in heavy doses of like, Neglecting dramatic irony, that's one of the devices. And dramatic irony, neglecting dramatic irony would be another way of saying that is that what the audience doesn't know, because dramatic irony is something that the audience knows that not necessarily all the characters do, right? Uh, points for my English teacher. I, all right. I, and I am, I've written it down in the journal for things to praise, praise you about later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for this reason, we typically see devices like flashback, nonlinear chronology, meaning like the, the film itself is out of time. The editing itself is out of time. You're going to have a lot of car- hard cuts and like jumping around uh, in terms of like, okay, so tonally that's not synch- uh, synchronous with what was happening before because it kind of wants to jolt you out of this idea that like what you're seeing is reliable. And that kind of also speaks about narration, narration of the main character specifically in noir it always came from this aspect of it's coming from this one like private dick that's telling you the story from their point of view uh, and that and often some of the best noirs were that that character is unreliable for some reason uh we got those unreliable narrators and protagonists usually with like things like alcoholism sometimes they have like amnesia i'm looking at like memento for example is a new noir version of that mm-hmm. uh it's usually some kind of reality altering aspect to the story uh, story for example it doesn't have to be internal it can also be something like chinatown where uh, the mystery at the heart at the heart of the mystery is something that it's so fundamentally fundamentally crazy an aspect of the mystery that jake was unable to see it you know the fact that there was yeah. like that incestuous kind of like story going and it's, on and it's alluring um, <clears throat> it, it lures our it lures our already hard-boiled character for one reason or the other mm-hmm. all in you know, like, and this makes sense yeah. when you look back in noir. Honestly, uh, there's been books written about uh, why, in a post-war society, you know, in like late '40s, '50s, you had a lot of writers and directors coming back, possibly with PTSD, definitely with some form of like guilt, uh, taking a design procedural tale of the detective story and fusing it with like self-examination and loathing. 
Yeah. Right? Does that scan? Oh, I mean, especially for like Billy Wilder or uh, mm-hmm. like people mm-hmm. like that who were really directly impacted by I the mean, war. Think of Bogart's yeah. entire career. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so that kind of, I want to itemize that those two things, the story and the protagonist and kind of like the stylistic or, or rather the uh, narrative structures and devices that are used. Because in the end, I think noir and what Nia Noir loved about noir and why it's like we were looking for a fresh update is because of noir is densely occupies style setting moods and themes those are the things that i think noir and neo-noir really do share because noir seems to well noir seems to set itself in like american cultural touchstones like it'd always be like a chicago or new york or something like that new noir is free from that limitation as we saw in the early 2000s and even all the way to the or rather the 2000s to like early 2010s uh, they can happen anywhere. A uh, few took place in like schools or in spaces that would be laughable for a classic noir, right? Yeah, but and they also they sort of returned to being a noir in the classic sense because, like, you and I have both mm-hmm. had a lot of conversations about noir films in the '90s, and they're mostly parodies. Like, they, yes, they didn't do that exactly. many noir films that were like. Uh, mm-hmm. you took on your face value. Like, for instance, we've talked about Basic Instinct and Ace Ventura and also mm-hmm. uh, Big Lebowski. All of those are noir films, um, according to this but definition, they're... but none of them are playing it as a noir film. They take out the hard-boiledness yes. of it and kind of laugh at the fact that it's like, exactly, they're laughing at the exact thing that I'm kind of talking about. Right. And the look. Because... They don't have the look of a noir film. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't... So... That is what I think neo-noirs loved about noirs, or at least the the films and the directors I'm going to be talking about today. They fell in love with the stylistic approaches of noir, and therefore that's what's similar about noir and neo-noir, is the style approach. And um, what I mean by that is like noir settings are almost always shadowing interiors, dingy offices, dark rain lash streets uh lighting was typically half or quarter light to put faces and spaces into ambiguity and like set this mood of like a bleak kind of pessimistic atmosphere right love that shit it's so, like my favorite so that's all mood and tone yeah yeah uh often the angular compositions of noir frames are very stark and claustrophobic that add to the punishment of the characters because if you're in pessimism world you're gonna want your uh all of your uh characters in turmoil or punishment right um i found a good quote who from lee horsley who's a noir scholar he has a good book on it which i'll put in the uh description Um, quote, both literary and cinematic noir are defined by one, the subjective point of view, two, the shifting roles of the protagonist, three, the ill-fated relationship between protagonist and society, parenthetical, generating the themes of alienation and entrapment, and four, the ways in which noir functions as a socio-political critique. So those four points are kind of how I'm going to examine how... Half-Blood Prince really actually is a neo-noir. I'm so excited about this. Uh, so let's start with uh, Harry Potter and Half-Blood Prince, or HBP as I like to call it, in the, <laughs> as we all call it in the biz, right? Get out of here. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's start with narrative structures. The mystery itself in Half-Blood Prince has uh, kind of got multiple threads, right? 
It's got who's the half-blood prince. That kind of comes up later. Who's cursing students. That's kind of earlier. What are Malfoy? I call him Malfoy. 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 Uh, Malfoy, Draco, uh, and Death Eaters. What are what are they? What's that whole subplot? What are they doing in secret? What's what's this whole uh, cupboard in the room of requirement? And at the heart of it, which is kind of actually posed in the previous film, what is Voldemort's secret weapon? So that's a lot of questions. Yeah. And it's all kind of surrounding like what all right, everyone's posturing for the big battle later. What are who's in play? What are the major players going on in here? And these are all big questions and they all have kind of one basic answer in the end, which is typical of noir or neo-noir. But these are narrative structures wise, many questions, many red herrings right yeah or or threads that lead to one greater answer right exactly or nothing at all uh we have two devices that teleport the movie into flashbacks and narration in the later films that's the pensieve which in this movie that's pretty pretty big deal because that's the bowl of memories that like Harry can put his head into and see like what happened. Uh, in the previous film, there's uh, occulency. I, I don't even know how to say that word. Ocu- occlumency? Uh, occlumency. This is this is the defense. That's the stuff? thing that he's doing. Yeah, it's like yeah the his lessons with Snape. Right, right. To close his and, mind, right. Yeah, it's to take us back into moments of histories or trials. Like honestly, sometimes in the books they're like fiction. You know, that just are testing Harry's mental fortitude. So once again, noir, we see this mental fortitude being tested and we see these out of body experiences or this lack of reliable, uh, like pseudo narrative being designed by the film. Like, Oh, we're revealing at the heart of the mystery. The thing that you thought was true, not true. It's this other thing. And on top of everything, he's starting to lose uh, his grasp with reality as he kind of falls into the hole of like how much how close am I to Voldemort am I like more of a Voldemort you know yeah uh again people get drunk and poisoned in this movie Ron with the love potion potion again done with sinister means Harry literally takes a luck potion potion at one point to steer him through an unlikely series of events that benefit like his understanding of the mystery at the heart of the tale uh the first crime in the movie the cursing of Katie Bell is done by with a necklace uh, that's cursed. Dumbledore drinks the zombie water yeah, at the yeah, end yeah. of the film. Yeah, 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 yeah. All these alter the persons who drinks them or is being cursed, like or wears them, in like a noirisk fashion. They all boil down to one, like one question: What did Voldemort do to himself that it? And like, what is a Horcrux? Yeah, and it's all about the transmogrification uh, of self. It's, it's about the alteration of self. It's also like just nowhere near as fun. As it was in previous movies, like the, oh yeah, because we're not talking about like oh when guy on Leviosa, it's like it's none of this right. fucking chandelier business. But like, with like oh, what are the candles? The funny thing about this movie is it actually has more of the school stuff in it than the previous two had, and yet like mm-hmm. it has things like relation, like dating and stuff, and yet because of the subject matter and the way it's treated, we kind it kind of just washes past you. You know, like uh, yeah. like the fact that Ron yeah. and Hermione just are super, just have just boners for each other, like kind of doesn't matter that much because of the grim 
vibe of this movie, right? Did, did you feel right. that? Yeah, you can't really enjoy. It's kind of like what it is now, like yeah. life now. Oh, like you can't enjoy things to their fullest because you're kind of reminded yeah. about the world. But also, like the way that Katie's curse happens, right? She's like held in a crucifix in the Horrifying. air. Yeah, really scary. The way that the curse that that Harry strikes Volt like Draco with is like really scary. And mm-hmm. Ron's choking is really scary. Like they're not, they're not funny. Like oh, you blew up your face, Seamus. It's not like that. It's yeah, very exactly. Dark. Yeah. Although we do a good, we do get a good Seamus blow Always, up in this right? one. It's a bit right yeah. at the top, getting in potions. It's a Harry Potter baby. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about color cinematography and lighting, and this is probably what most people who are just like, just watching Harry Potter's and not like wanting to think about like how these things, the mechanizations of. Uh, like what's what 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 the directors were thinking, et cetera. This is what they're probably going to respond most to. Again, I have no idea. Uh, but it's desaturation, low fill lighting, meaning not a lot of light on the side of, on the side of their faces that are not the bright side. That side, a little bit darker. Uh, you have natural bright sources that bloom in this film. And that's due to a color correction effect that kind of pulls the midtones and highlights out, mm. uh, meaning making those themselves brighter or sorry, uh, less bright in order to kind of get that dark vibe that you're talking about. There's there's no if you watch this movie and put it through like a computer, uh, I'm pretty sure there's not one pixel that is like that is 100 percent white. You know, oh, that yeah. is two five five white. If, it feels um, like Batman the white. animated series or something. Like I mean, it feels like Batman begins, but more on that. Right, later. right, right. Obviously. Uh, but like Batman the animated series, like famously they started with a blake with a black page, right? And then added color to mm-hmm. it. Sometimes it mm-hmm. feels like that in this movie, where it's like it starts with dark and they add light to it and not the other way around. Uh yeah, and I wanna point out that that's different from stark, because stark right. is a word that we give to contrast. Uh, contrast meaning the distance between two things, um, as opposed to this, which is kind of muting. There's a muting that is occurring in the color correction and in the cinematography. These lighting techniques and post-production techniques were in full swing during this entire decade. And uh, just to you know, kind of uh, open that little piece of history, mm. after the Coen brothers... Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, which was the first film to use a digital intermediate. And what that means is that they essentially took photos, digital photos of every single frame, even though they shot it on film, and then could streamline the color grading process into a completely digital one. So they didn't have to put like film into baths of chemicals and such. So a lot of films during uh, during this decade did this because they saw it and therefore it kind of had a baked in lo- look like it's reminiscent of like an Instagram filter, for example, example, there's even uh, professional color grading softwares that have presets that you can just drag and drop to establish these kinds of looks like this is industry standard kind of stuff. Uh, it's not too different from, let's say, choosing a film stock in the old days. Like if you take a film stock like Ektachrome or Double X Black and White, uh, which is a very contrasty kind of look. You know, think of um, Pi or even like Eraserhead. Uh, Ektachrome, think of like Easy Rider or like any film from the 60s, gosh, um, that is like, you know, 
love and <laughs> hippies and shit. <laughs> like that was they chose that shit because it, like it caused them to think about those kinds of things. Ectochrome made me think of sunsets and natural colors and earth tones. Yeah. And so I'm going to think of things like, I don't know, Woodstock and shit. I, uh, but it's just easy and precise now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, with color correction, we can do this shit. I was thinking of like to, Saving Private yeah. Ryan when you mentioned this because I was like, well, didn't that movie yes. do it? But they actually, it turns out they did a bleach bypass for the negative. Bleach bypass. Right. Which is what this is, mix, this is mimicking. It is. But like it's not, but but not quite right. It's a lot. You're saying the words precise, and I think that's right because it doesn't just wash the image out. Like they're also, it's almost like they're giving it like fingers of darkness where there aren't any in the in the image, and it's beautiful. You know, imagine like this with the analog version. Bleach bypass means that you're literally giving. There's several points to what a bleach bypass is, but one of the aspects is that you use bleach as a chemical that allows some aspects of the silver nitrate to uh, continue through the process and some to be blocked. So that's why it's a bypass. It's like a stopgap on some some aspects that bleach is a pretty has an effective look for. But bleach is an organic kind of material or not an organic material, but it's a it's a chemical that it it influences things because you you put it in there it's like it's like acid or something like that. It's just going to react to what you're throwing into it. So even if you dilute this solution and such, you can dial it in. It's still going to be the same beast it's going to be. And you're always going to be beholden to those chemical processes. No longer is that true. After the digital intermediate kind of came into being, you could say, yeah, I want to fuck with the highlights, but I also want to fuck with the midtones differently. And I want to, in the middle of highlights and midtones, add another curve. You know, like I want to do a lot of little precision kind of things that don't exist in the analog world, really. Uh, so that's kind of my, you know, hey, that's what's going on uh, in terms of the tech side. Interesting. Um, let's get back to what the the approach was uh, from a cinema, uh, cinematography point of view. A lot of long lenses are a thing in this mm-hmm. movie. Not long lenses in the sense that uh thing people are shooting on 85s or 100s which uh means that they're like really zoomed in in telephoto but like even their wide shots are like in the middle distance yeah yeah like instead of using a 24 millimeter you're using like a 40 and what that does like if you uh is it makes like a lot of neo-noirs do this nolan man fincher they'll love len- uh lenses in this kind of middle space because there's an emphasis on soft backgrounds, it kind of uh, compresses the space, which is what telephoto lenses do, but <clears throat> not a ton, just a little bit, just a little bit more than a 35. Maybe put on that 40. Maybe instead of, yeah, I want a wide angle, let's maybe not use the 20 millimeter, let's use the 24. You know, it's like, and if you look at the action sequences, uh, which usually play in wider angles, um, you get the feeling of like the Bourne ultimatums kind of coming in. And I'm not just talking about the editorial style because that's the by far the biggest thing that you take away from the Bourne films is that it's just action. It's an action sequence. Cut, 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 cut. But I'm talking about, oh, they're shooting on. Oh, it's not, you know, it's uh, Matt Damon's shoulder. That's It's a shot of his shoulder. It's like not doing much. And it's because they're zooming in a little bit uh, for all, you know, they're just changing the focal length. Um, so, yeah, emphasis on softer backgrounds. It forces the compression to condense the composition. Uh, it makes 
larger and deeper backgrounds to become like clearer lines in the background. Now, what I mean by that is they're not crisp lines. Crisp is different from clear in my head because crisp would be that it would be like everything's in focus. When I say clear is that when you have this blurring effect, it's imagine someone like a painter coming in with a larger brush that is just like, I have a, a brush, a single brush stroke that represents like the incline of a mountain. That's just done with a, a mountain can be d- drawn with two, you know, intersecting lines, right? Yes. So that's a clear indication of like a mountain by blurring all of the stuff behind the actors. And there's a lot of stuff in this movie. There's, you know, always, uh, there's always hallways with a bunch of stuff. There's rooms with like, for no reason, like look at the room of requirement. There's just chairs everywhere for no reason stacked on stacks on stacks and stacks. Let's not make that feel cluttered. Let's kind of blur it a little bit. So that it's kind of just like, oh, it's just kind of a a wash of like brown over here. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, he kind of. So it's like he, clearer indications of what space is he, to, in the two D frame. Yeah, he also uses a lot of uh, what you might call abstract space. So where mm-hmm. and he, I think he uses the long lens that you're talking about to accomplish it. So like the best example is Harry comes back to the Weasley house unannounced because Dumbledore drops him off there, right? And then like. Uh, so Jenny comes in and she's like, did you know Harry was here? And they have this shot that's looking up at the Weasley weird palace. And you can't really tell where anybody is in it because the staircase Mm -hmm. and the lines are all very abstract. So it's hard to say where Mm -hmm. ever, like what the, you can't get your bearings about how far up things are. And to, Mm -hmm. to use that effect, people's heads keep popping up asking, Oh, Harry's here. And then another person, Oh, Harry's here. And, they're all at a different distance from camera. So it's funny. It's like a funny shot, but it also reinforces this idea of like just a mountain of clutter and, and not having a clear sense of depth Um, or geography. I think that that's one of the strongest aspects of like first time, uh, not first time director, but first time directing a Harry Potter. He knew that in like, even look at like order of the Phoenix, the geography was very clear in that movie yeah. about, okay, this hallway leads to this right. hallway. They, they think about once again, the room requirement, like the sequence where Filch is like trying to find them and see where they're going. Like, it's all about passing, passing the camera to the next hallway and the next hallway and like tracking the spaces. This very smartly goes, everyone knows it's like Hogwarts, baby. Like everyone knows we don't right, need right, to right. You know, see the connective tissue. Yes. We can just like jump right there. And you're right. There's a form of abstraction of Hogwarts in this movie. They use a lot of um, like a, a lot of shots that if Kubrick had shot them, they'd be this gigantic wide lens, like hallway, yeah. deep space shots. And instead what he does is he sort of puts them on the far edge of the frame, which I know you're going to talk about and uses the hallway as kind of a big loud mess to make mm-hmm. the characters feel alienated. Um, and he shoots it on kind of a longer lens, so it doesn't have the Kubrick effect. It has the effect of mm-hmm. feeling like the frame is a big block and the person's trapped in it. Um, he does yep. that a lot. And it's it's actually quite beautiful. Um, yeah. You know? And it's not the first filmmaker to kind of think about right. that. And kind of more on that later. The last thing I want to talk about, Half-Blood Prince, and specific as it's uh, relative to Neo-Noir and the stylistic approaches 
is um well not the stylistic approaches but like the protect the first thing that i was talking about with noir the protagonist and like the story beats and why this is and this is more of like i guess jk rowling's influence when we see the noir themes at play mysteries that reveal aspects of the protagonist's identity guilt over actions of the self general pe- pessimism by everyone or the feeling of alienation of the protagonist against society half-blood prince has it all all of those things there's check marks for that and just watch the film you know at the heart of the story is harry's guilt over becoming more like voldemort right like in order to the phoenix when he uses at the very end of that film he uses the cruciatist curse which is like the the torture curse on Helena Bonham Carter. Yeah. And like, by the way, no one mentions that because no one really saw, but like, that's also, she doesn't mention it. Like you just did an unforgivable curse. You basically are Voldemort at this point right. or a death eater. He just does it and gets away with it. But then he doesn't get away with it when he uses freely uses like sectum sempra, which is what you pointed Pretty out. Pretty brutal too. Uh, half blood print. Yeah. yeah. Cause it eviscerates flesh, right? It, I, Cuts I up Dra- uh, Draco. Yeah. And then he tries to use it again on Snape at the yep, end. He does. So he's battling his ability to be less like Tom Riddle, right? So there's all of those themes in one little nice bundle. Also, this is a movie where Dumbledore asks Harry Potter to do morally gray things, which he has not asked him to do for the most part until now. So like the most right. morally gray thing is they are he is harry is brought along to manipulate slughorn into giving him information that they need right and like right it's to be collected yes and like it's partly playing along with slughorn's game but it's also partly like very clear dishonest manipulation and harry eventually not only gets wise to it but agrees and takes it even further which is kind of a dark thing and then probably the darkest thing in any of the films really is like him forcing the poison down Dumbledore's throat, which mm-hmm. Dumbledore asks him to do. And we, and, and you know, you understand it's magic, but like, but as it changes him, he's like, no, yeah, yeah. it's grim. It's grim. It's Real grim. grim. And he's fighting zombies. Yep. Yeah, yep. absolutely. All, all bundling up. It's all kind of, I think, uh, all in all, there's a strong case for Half-Blood Prince being a neo-R and, and at the minimum, heavily influenced by that genre, both the book and the movie I'm talking yep. about. I think that that's important because there's a lot of our tour filmmakers and popular filmmakers during this time, the middle, you know, 2000s and on that neo-noir was their bread and butter. And one that keeps coming to mind is Fincher. Sure. So I want to talk about Fincher and like the 2000s drab visual style and how he kind of he kind of took it and run with ran with it. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of like the snake eating itself a little bit. Who knows if he or the chicken and the egg is probably a better example of it. Either he was well suited for the time or his movies transform the time or both something's going on there. One element of Fincher's visual style, for example, is the specific way in which he uses camera, how he tilts, pans, and tracks in camera movement. When a character is in motion or expressing emotions, the camera typically moves at the exact same speed, or sometimes what we call a sympathetic speed, uh, or as their body is kind of moving. These movies movements are choreographed precisely between the actors and the camera operators. This is a Fincher, you know, bread and butter kind of thing. The resulting effect is to help the audience connect with the character or to understand their feelings, right? Yes. There's a lot of moments in Half-Blood Prince that remind me of this. 
the beginning, there's a post-title sequence where it shows downtown London being ravaged by Death Eaters. And there's a long CG camera tracking shot that goes to and fro through bridges, alleys, streets, and buildings, and then goes into one particular building. Much like Panic Room's famous through the house sequence, right? So now we're kind of starting to tell on ourselves. When Potter, another one is when Potter talks to Katie Bell after she's healed, we track with Harry as he approaches Katie, and then Katie looks at Draco, and the camera kind of opens up and then cuts to a new sympathetic speed entirely of its own that's much slower, more unsure of itself, kind of wonky and like wobbly. And that's because it's Draco's camera now, and as he backs up and runs away, we kind of follow with him. The entire uh, Felix Felicitas sequence when he takes the luck drink. It's slightly lower angled, steady cam shots. So you feel, put it by putting it low, you feel Harry's confidence because he's up a little higher than usual. So you, we're looking up at him. He has more power, and that, uh, and you feel that confidence as he's walking through the halls. And then also the interruption of when Slughorn is like stealing buds in the greenhouse. It reminds me a lot of how Fincher covers walks and walk and talks. Like in Zodiac, when we uh, look at how the office sequences are constructed, we follow people and it kind of like passes between to get like the bustle of the office. Uh, then they kind of cut and pass to the momentum to another person. So it's this like constantly moving ball that like matches the speed of the person who's wielding it. And that happens a lot in this movie. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing is that there's a lot of camera similarities in what Yates is doing with what Fincher does. Another thing is color. Again, seems obvious. With Fincher, especially in his later work, you get that Instagram filter vibe I was talking about, probably most famously in The Social Contract or Gone Girl. Think of like an ultra-thin scrap of wax paper like over the entire entire frame that kind of mutes and like blurs everything. There's a halination effect. That's what it's called. And they would actually accomplish that by uh, putting a... uh, pantyhose in on the back of the glass of the lens like in the back focus space like where it opens up and there's a gate and that's really? that's where the film runs through yeah they, that's how they would affect wow. it they would essentially take nail polisher and like glue it on and then slam the uh lenses on there that's fascinating and that's how you get yeah you get a little bit of um like soap opery you know but it wouldn't be over dramatic you'd pick thinner hose and such but anyway Fincher's visual style which includes that kind of stuff uses like monochromatic and desaturated colors he loves blue greens yellows uh and that kind of represents all the and that's like through all of his movies he kind of represents that's how he kind of sees the world and honestly that color strategy looks a lot better here than some of his films especially his earlier films Probably first explored in Panic Room is when he started doing that color effect. I mean, it's to a lesser extent Fight Club. Yeah, Fight Club. But Fight Club, Fight Club is stark and contrasty, and it's um, it feels more like a '90s film. I don't know. What the, about the, Seven? It didn't have the benefit of the DI, the digital intermediate, the, so it wasn't as precise in its approach to like blacks and midtones and whites, right? Definitely. What what, what about um, Seven? Yeah, that's the same kind of situation okay. though. Like they didn't have the benefit of that DI. It's and that was that looks a lot like fi- uh, Fight Club, in my opinion. Uh, but it's got that griminess. Yeah. So it's there from the beginning with Fincher, but it's almost after this film when Fincher started really going. Okay, this is how. Like, look at Gone Girl. You know, look at Zodiac. Right. 
once he had control of color correction, he was like, nah, this is the way it goes. And it looks very similar. And I think uh, the reason that I would argue that Harry Potter looks a little better is that, A, the budgets are insanely right, high. Right. So they ha- they can fill the castle with a bunch of stuff. So there's many natural windows. There's sconces on the walls. The walls themselves have beautiful definition because they're stone. Uh, there's a bunch of bookcases and trinkets, and it's all Harry Potter with cauldrons all <laughs> all, all on the frame. Um, and then compare that to like a Fincher thing where it's a suburban house or like an office. So I guess what I'm trying to say is there is a way in which they separate because there's drab in Finch's worlds. There's whimsy in Harry Potter, yet the similarities in the visual style come from the darkness of the frames and the themes. Um, Another aspect that I think caused this visual definition of the late 2000s was introductions of cameras like the red camera, which took the indie market by storm in like the mid 2000s. There was a time frame like 2005 to 2011 where we really all identified that aged photo chroma starved look as something that was indicative of the indie, smaller humble films with dark themes because the red camera just looks like that. Like that's just an affectation. They shoot pretty flatly, meaning they like try to represent as much as the dynamic ranges of, of a camera can. Uh, and people kind of liked it and they were like, you know what, let's not like make it look like film. Let's use this tool and make it look like I kind of like this look. And there's probably a whole book or at least a lecture on like our half decade visual fascination on the medium of just the fact that the, a media, the medium of video changed and became like a real contender and like took over film, uh, and why that like informed our tastes but its reach really knows no bounds. It's still to this day, it influenced Guillermo del Toro immediately, Wes Anderson immediately. It still influences TV today. Lovecraft Country is still on HBO right mm-hmm. now. And you can't tell me that that doesn't look like a red camera. True. Even if it's not. I absolutely think it's probably shot on the Alexa or something. Visual side, uh, Half-Blood Prince is much more symmetrical film than Fincher would make, so I'm not going to go to bat and say like it's a mock-up of Fincher's work because like there's a lot of things that are different, like Fincher's angular momentum and framing, uh, which is another way of saying like large shapes and frame fragmenting the frame. He's a lot more stark. There's both claustrophobic films in a way, but the angles are like more cu- acute or obtuse. Like they're strangely oblong or confining. And he uses the frame space, like the horizontal real estate uh, to like really push someone on the side or really put them in the center. He doesn't like the thirds as much. Well, Half-Blood Prince is like a, you know, Hollywood feature. So it's going to use stick on the thirds, stick on the thirds. Cause that's just convention. Uh, Half-Blood Prince doesn't really cant or dutch its angles. It does take moments, usually like the emotional resonant moments to short frame and use that horizontal dominance that I was just talking about. Like traditionally we obey the thirds, right? But if you look at like, for example, when Harry and uh, Jeannie connect in the requirement room and they have their like kind of first time that they actually are alone and talking to each other after their love has started to blossom, they're placed way far on the right of frame. And this is something I noticed that Yeats does in emotional scenes. He chooses to cover them more unconventionally. I think that's kind of comes from indie features too, which do things unconventionally. And he's like, 
yeah, let's pick up the indie dial a little bit more. I, I, but, you know, if it's just a dialogue scene between him and Snape, it's going to be like basic coverage. I think he's more um, confident in this film. Is That's a big part of it. Because it's his third one, right? This is the third film he made for Harry Potter. Right? Wait, no. Yeah, are you sure? I think this it is. This is his first. So the way it works is there's Christopher Columbus for one and two. And then Prisoner of Azkaban was Alfonso Cuaron. Right. And then Mike Newell took over for, uh, for what's it called? Goblet of Fire. Oh. Uh, yeah, actually, no, you're right. It's It must be the second then, because Mike Newell is uh, must have directed Order of Phoenix. I th- or not Mike Newell. Uh, Yates, David Yates must have directed that. Uh, and he kind of owns all of the dark space. Like, the movies that we're talking about, that's all Yates. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I thought that Yates took over with, uh, uh, with the fourth movie. No, that's Mike Newell who did okay. uh, Goblet of Fire. I realize that. Okay, I see. Uh, but, and that's like, I mean, Corona is really the one who kind of right. changed it, which is right. hilarious because Prisoner of Azkaban, which was 2004, the movie before that was Itu Mama Tambien. <laughs> which is <laughs> fucking great, so, by the way. Great movie. Right. <laughs> like, and then after Harry Pot- Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, his movie two years later was Children of Men uh, and then Gravity. Yeah, <laughs> you know, wow. like So... So he really is uh, an Artur that like kind of they darkened it up. But then Mike Newell kind of just honestly kind of mimicked what he did. And then in the ending sequences, ramped it up. And then it was Yates who had to kind of take those reins and drive it home. Uh, And that's an interesting aspect of, you know, there's a whole conversation about how directors in a franchise have to kind of pass things and live in their own embedded world right. that someone else built right. uh but that's not what this is Correct. about um i want to mention just as an aside because it's not that i don't acknowledge them i just chose finch fincher because he is like all of his films are new noir michael mann is another great touchstone collateral and miami vice a lot of what he was doing with the color brightness aspects that I've been talking about, uh, Michael Mann kind of predated all of them. Uh, Christopher Nolan's in there. He definitely had the biggest impact. And after 2005 and Batman Begins, we basically saw how desaturation and the bleach bypass look could serve more than just period pieces like Saving Private Ryan, which is what you mentioned. Like he said, oh, yeah, but like that look, but like now, but like it's not a period piece, you know? It's not a flashback to history, which is almost exclusively how Bleach Bypass was used at that time. Right. uh, To create an, like, otherworldly effect, to create a, you know, like, in back in the day, you know, kind of thing. Right. It's supposed to to conjure a sense of antiquity. Uh, Right. And I'd say that the modernization of this look uh, still is being felt today. Sure. Um, Sure. So another thing I want to talk about about the 2000s is nonlinear editing and how that influenced the Noir and some of the things that we're talking about. So like the camera technology, like the red, films began to be edited in a nonlinear format. So there's the Avid, which I know, uh, Adam, you're well Ugh. familiar with because we both used Avid Media Composer uh, in our film school, which was like, consider that like, I guess to make Adam happy, the Los Angeles Lakers. <laughs> yeah, baby. Uh, it was the industry standard couldn't be touched. Everyone used it for yeah. decades. And even when computers started happening, like 
media composer was developed and they still used avid they just trust Avid. Yes. filmmakers love also, avid avid's uh, about to win a championship this year is just like the lakers are <laughs> same thing <laughs> Uh, and it was used by TV too. It was just industry standard. And the toolkit itself, even in the digital format, is reminiscent of a movie vola. Meaning, like, all right, advance the tape, cut, glue, advance the tape, cut, glue, splice. Uh, so it's coming from that world because it was dealing with editors, film editors, who were literally working with film tape. And they were like, well, we got to make that make sense for those people, right? And then when we actually were going to film school, Final Cut, Adobe Premiere, Vegas. These softwares treated clips of footage like layers in Photoshop. You can stack them on top of each other. Who cares? Who gives a fuck? You have complete control. It's not that Avid Media Composer doesn't have that ability to some extent, but they catered to the industry they were born into, and they were the earliest born. So the prosumer indie professional market that like you and I came out of wasn't a thing when they built that software infrastructure. Now that may not, that's not that, this may not be that interesting, but like when you edit an Avid circa 2005, it was like treating regions or clips or like, all right, the cut from here to here and it's one continuous uh, shot. Like it treated it like a draggable series of tapes. It's real based editing and that made a learning curve for some kid who grew up with Photoshop and Adobe Suites and you know MS Paint and computers that just allow you to do whatever. It's not very intuitive. No. And that they had kind of reached that plateau. So you saw the new blood enter the industry with the savvy that was just auxiliary. And with the con- continued like democratization of the tools, DSLRs, Final Cut, you could just buy third-party lens adapters you can make your video look like film a little bit stabilizers you could build yourself with pbc pipe you know the movement of the medium changed and in like three to five years a blink in the eye in terms of like the next biggest thing in terms of filmmaking that developed cinema completely different from where cinema cinema began and we had professionals reflecting that new tool set so and it's still happening you know like we're gonna have I mean, I can't even call it, but like we're, we're going to, you know, we're absolutely going to make augmented reality films, for example. Sure. It's just never changing medium as it and should be. Some, some filmmakers um, were always sort of savvy to that. Like I would argue Steven Soderbergh has always been a forerunner yeah. of uh, just different technologies and mediums. You know? Oh yeah, he fucks with that shit. Lo- I love it. Me too. He's very it. creative. Carpenter too. Uh, Maybe not with the medium, but just like, yeah, I don't care. I'll be a, f- I'll be a composer. <laughs> <laughs> yep i don't care that's that's what he says it's in his diary if you read it oh, oh yeah. yeah so so let's talk about neo-noirs in the 2000s and fincher's influence and um kind of why we were in love with this at the time so fincher's films were typically non-linear narratives and I've explained kind of why the tools at the time kind of pushed us in that direction. And so it's very easy to include. It's, it kind of puts to the forefront of your mind as an editor, uh, editorial devices like flashbacks or narration or non-linear editing. Fincher's films also had themes that were very similar to New Noir, as uh, we talked about, like martyrdom, alienation, dehumanization of modern culture. All these things are his bag, right? His characters are troubled, flawed, unable to socialize. 
They feel isolated from everyone else. That's why his films will like are often mistaken for messianic films because it's the same bag of tricks. But usually his messiahs are pieces of shit, right? Yeah, he's he's an anti um, he's an anti messiah type filmmaker. And these are all kind of things explored in Half Blood Prince. And I'd say that in general, uh, the darker impulses of of the self came to the forefront in the 2000s. And I'd say that that could probably be, that's a lot of things, but it definitely on the list is 9-11. Sure. You know, like right, right. there's a lot to be said about this guilt of a culture. Uh, because I, yeah, well, anyway, I'll talk about that a little bit later, like kind of in, in a second. It's not that Fincher, Mann, or Soderbergh, or Richie, or Snyder, or Nolan, or Yates, or any of these like, White guys coined the look and uh, thematic zeitgeist at the time. They're kind of bouncing off each other, right? That's how film uh, film grammar works, right? They followed the direction of the tools and the taste of the culture, which were seen in what did well the year before. And then its effect on cinematic culture was so massive that we couldn't stop making gritty reboots. So it was like, oh, here's this new thing. We like it. Oh, you like that? Here we go. Here's another thing. Here's another thing. We still like it. You know, and that so our tastes were being defined by the tools of the filmmakers or the, the filmmakers were being influenced by their tools and by what people wanted and people being influenced by the good filmmakers at the time. So once again, we see the chicken and the egg. Now, in a way, it kind of was always out of their control. Once we saw it as authentic and new, we kept signing up, right? Uh, and when web and TV were taking over the quality programming space, the new abnormal, uh, which is, you know, listen to our Dread podcast, we kind of talked about how even the modes of distribution affected this. Uh, these were things that did well. And so they lifted up the other visual artists mimicking those forms. Uh, and so, that, so that's why the visual rhetoric of the time was kind of in the eyes of the beholder, meaning both the artist and the person who is making the art. The person who's making the art and the person who's beholding the art, are. it's that kind of conversation as opposed to one person saying, this is the new visual rhetoric or the audience saying, this is, we want only this, only make these things. That's just not how it works. Um, and so they aped each other's styles. And all these people were like around the same age, had the same perspective and diet of movies when they grew up. So there's a collective generational consciousness and therefore artistic approach. Uh, and yeah, I think that that's what the zeitgeist got defined by. So when you ask the question... Uh, like, why is it that these films turn dark and they all kind of look like other films of that era with all the aspects of lensing, editing, color correcting, etc.? cetera? Uh, it's kind of that big bundle that I'm talking about. It revealed a lot about CG and green, green screen and mocap as well. Like, because those technologies kind of arrived as a new box that our artists could play with. And so that's why you always get this, like, really bumpy road at the beginning you know right where it's like ah they aren't really nailing it and then like lord of the rings comes out and you go ah they fucking nailed it well let's only do that then <laughs> you know let's make a transformers with that um <laughs> and what's crazy about the non-linear 
and the like the camera changes and the tools changing is that those kind of came out ready to go there wasn't much of like a bump and grind to figure it out they kind of could nail it out of the gate because the tools made it so easy so that's another aspect is that when they're making the films and it's increasingly easy to make something look like an Instagram filter with just a few clicks on your entire movie just let's just fuck with things and make things look completely different um, and that's what I think people fell in love with. That would be my argument. It's interesting. I, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a unique movement from, like, say, how every filmmaker was imitating Spielberg in the 80s or how a lot of filmmakers were imitating Godard. It doesn't feel like it's driven by any particular person. Although, if it, if it is, no. I'd say it's Fincher. Like, if there is one guy, I'd say yeah, it's Fincher. Yeah, that's why I picked one. Right. Yeah, I had to pick one. Well, I and felt, he was doing it, and Fincher's the one. I mean, one. Seven and Fight Club and and the game from the '90s are definitely precursors to this vibe. Uh, yeah, less so in the visuals, and more so. I mean, still there, but more so in the thematic kind of. Oh, we like the darker, yeah, the grime of it. We like our dark yeah, boys. Yeah, that's right. You know? But there's been, and I also think there's been like sort of explorations of these tools uh, that. Uh, are how do I uh, about sort of committing the unreality like so like Snyder for instance or uh, Sin City uh, a tool like mm-hmm. those are those are explorations of I would say the same themes and the same tools and the same feelings mm-hmm. but then like trying to say something different with them um, I I don't think yeah. they did I think they said the same thing but I but like you can see people trying to find individuality within it and it's hard. I don't know why it's so hard, but it is. It's it's as hard as it is to, as a director or a writer or a performer, find a unique voice. Right. So it tools don't help you find a voice. I mean, they do in the sense that you can use them, but they're just a tool. You need to have the voice. So while people are trying these different diets of like new aspects of filmmaking and like what was going around in the zeitgeist and trying to alter and adapt for the times. I think you're, you're right. Yeah. There there's that. I think I called it a collective generational consciousness. Uh, you needed to be a spike in that noise. You need to rise above all the other. And you know who did that? That were vying for you your attention. You know who did that? Who Wes did Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, did. he did he, he fucking really... did yeah uh i got hey if i ever have to pick uh some wallpaper oh my god I know right? or I'm a shirt him. uh it... oh yeah dude the guy oh, knows shirts killer and with that shirts. is his effect on yeah. our world <laughs> the finding of better shirts yeah. by wes anderson no, I, I i think the, no. i think the, <laughs> the fact that you're making this case for a kind of uniform taste uh, or and, and a uniform mm-hmm. sort of execution of movies. That's really interesting uh, because I think you've done a pretty nice job, sort of outline like outlining all the different pieces that contributed to it. And it, you're going to go into 9/11 here in a minute, right? Like that's going to happen next, right? Well, I mean, I, I think I think I'm more or less okay. done. Uh, I think I've said everything I want to say. But yeah, we can talk about 9/11. <laughs> <laughs> the thing they really tuned in for. You want to talk? You want to talk about 9/11? I mean, I mean, you know what? Honestly, I find a lot of people's summaries about how 9/11 affected art to be a little tedious. 
or reductive or I, I don't know. I mean, what do you mean tedious? Tedious because there it's like we kind of all know it already. I mean, I, I guess that doesn't yeah. mean it's yeah. not worth saying. It, it's still worth saying, but that's why I didn't dwell yeah, yeah, into yeah. it. All good. But I'll, I'll only to say that we had like a like it fed into the neo noir guilt aspect because I remember like two to three years after maybe like three to five years after 9-11, we already had guilt about the war. Like as a young kind of adult at that time, I remember in like 2000, you know, three being like against the war. Well, you know? Pretty sure we killed more people. And feeling guilt about it. I mean, it. pretty sure we killed more people in like day one than we lost in September yeah. 11th. But uh, I might right. be wrong about that, but it, it was, it was not a just, it was not a, an eye for an eye. I'll put it that way. Um, and everybody mm. could sense that. Like nobody seems to think that was good. Like who's back there being like, no, it was a good thing we did that. Uh, I think that's true. But also, like nine eleven, uh, did did the obvious thing that everybody always says, which is sort of like it took away the innocence of a generation. You know, like. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. I could, yeah. There's something about like how the mid level blockbuster just within ten years, if you like, a ninety five ish to two thousand five ish, you know, like the stakes of all this films. Right. Like we went from something like John Travolta might get so smart. He might die <laughs> to 10 years later. <laughs> the world will cease to exist because of alien invasion. Right. And this is like our mid tier blockbusters. Like the stakes could never well, get I mean, higher. It's, and it's one it, of the, it's, it's one of the things we're taking the piss out of now. Right. We're saying like, yeah, it's fucking every movie is fucking the world's going to blow up. Yeah. It's like, a, <laughs> it's like a, Film critic looked at noir films from the forties, and then you, and then looked at nine eleven and said, "Ah, this is this neo noir thing is essentially the same thing the noir films were, which is reacting to the reality right. of a dark world." And it's like, yeah, that's human nature. And we, yeah, you just had a war. Yeah, I mean, like, I do think it's interesting. <laughs> just a lot of people died. Right, right. I do think it's interesting that Fincher seemed to be on this beat. Before everybody else. Now, maybe that's just benefit yeah. benefiting from the times. Uh, like, he was sort of a morbid son of a bitch, and then the times kind of caught up with him. I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, 1999, and he made a book by Chuck Blahniak. You know, that was like, a dark and movie. And that book, Fight Club. That, and that's a dark book. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, they're not the same, but, like, it really the motivations for the characters and how they see the world are There's the same. so much despair in fight club. Uh, like it's definitely mm -hmm. like the world's broken and unfixable. So fuck it. Like that's, that's definitely the attitude of that movie. I remember feeling that very strongly when I went to the theater to see it as a kid, it was like, yeah, this is, and if you remember the books, the books, I mean, they're, they get darker, but they aren't that Fincher darkness by books. You, know? you mean the Harry Potter like, books? The yeah. Harry Potter books, yeah, they're not, they are, like, the stakes are, you're destroying a teenage life, and, like, with Harry, and, you know, obviously the, the world might end, so the stakes are like a Lord of the Rings or something like that, and that's much of the fantasy genre that it came from, but, like, when we talk about, like, how much emphasis the movies put into the fact that, like, Harry is becoming Voldemort arc, yeah, of the right. later films like that is much more emphasized than page to page like the ratio that you're going to get in the books and i think it's because we had a fascination with the idea of self being having a guilt you know i think there, there's something i'm not a psychologist but 
There's something there, There must right? be. I, I'm not totally be. sure that J.K. Rowling intended for us to wonder if Harry was becoming more like Voldemort. Like, Oh, I, absolutely she did. That's in the books. I mean, I read the books. But it's I, just not emphasized. I read the books, and I understood the Horcrux thing. Uh, like he's the last Horcrux. Right, right, right. Spoilers. Right? Uh, <laughs> you got it. <laughs> right, right. I, obviously, he's the last Horcrux. Obviously, that... Uh, but, like, it doesn't feel like he reaches... It doesn't feel like there's ever a time where we assume Harry's going to go bad and become a Death Eater or become a new Voldemort. Like, that doesn't seem like a real tension. But in the movies, it does. Mm-hmm. Like, you saying that was like, wow, that is there in the movies, actually. Uh, yeah. It's also, remember, as a reader, I read him. We all kind of read him before. Yeah, I read him before. The Darkness yeah. of Times. Well, so because of that, we in- interpreted even events were like, and then Harry used the Cruciatist curse or whatever the fuck crucio and it's like oh shit he's going for it but we don't actually imagine the visceral glee that's on his face when he does it and her absolute horror because that's like two strong actors dealing with a v- torture you know and we go oh fuck you know and like they dipped into it, it it's also jk saying. rowling's style and i like i understand that we don't want to talk about her too much but like she writes in a very she has a very playful writing style uh, she's very on the surface of things. But it's like, like... She, I don't want to. I don't want to show her writing. I don't think she's that bad, actually. Uh, I mean, she needed an editor. It's 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 set in it's Douglas Adams esque, but not too Douglas Adams. It's polite. It's like Harry farted, then wept. You know, it's like <laughs> all right, we just went through a lot of shit there, J.K. <laughs> You gonna unpack that, any? It's what's going it's not, on there. No, so it, simplicity. You're gonna language. think this is a dumb comparison, but that's okay. So, like, I want to like J.K. Rowling or J. J. R. R. Tolkien as a writer of fantasy, right? Uh, sort of has two voices. Like he writes as Bilbo in The Hobbit, mm-hmm. and and then he writes as Frodo in The Lord of the Rings, and the point of view of the narrator, although it's very distant in both of those stories really dramatically shapes the stakes of it. Uh, and, and that's because like the understanding of the character informs like what, what we think is happening, like what it means, what's happening. And JK Rowling's narrator, who I don't think is a person is, just seems to still think it's mostly happening in a school. You know what I mean? Like it's most, it's mostly still a school story and I don't bl- I don't think that's a bad thing. Where I, and the same way that like Bilbo right. from The Hobbit, sort of, it's really more of a fun adventure he's having than it is like mm-hmm. uh, a chance encounter with an end of the world type event. Like he doesn't really understand that the end of the world is at stake, whereas Frodo does in Lord of the Rings, and that's why everybody loves Lord of the Rings so much, um, because L- Frodo's character that as narrator puts all this history and all this like t- all the stakes of what is happening. Uh, in the text, yeah, he puts he put stank, stank on, it. on it. Whereas J.K. Rowling <laughs> doesn't, and like the best example of it is when you read the last, the last battle of Voldemort and Harry Potter. It's very like it's like an Encyclopedia Brown episode or something. Like it's very dumb. Like they have this <laughs> yeah. long, these two long monologues over over wand lightning, and they're very like, "Yes, I yeah. dare, Riddle, I dare." Like it's very, it's very silly and melodramatic. And the filmmakers were like, "No, no, we're getting rid of all of that. 
they got rid of all of it. Yeah, uh, they were like, "No, we're gonna make like this has to be an action, and like he has to die without words. If 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 they do talk, it's not very much, and like it needs to feel like basically the way the way the Lord of the Rings feels. You know what I mean? Like they went more in that direction, uh, and I think that's why we like the movies so much. Because if we'd made the movies the way J.K. Rowling wrote yeah. it, they would have been more disposable, I think." And Lord of the Rings was always kind of a more adult tale, yes. Um, yes, it's not. I mean, it's. I mean, it would be rated PG thirteen probably. Um, it could right. be rated R. It's not, but it's more adult. Like none of these are R. Well, it, none of what Lord we're of the talking Rings about expects you to have a certain amount of understanding of human nature, and sort of like the way that mm-hmm. men are, like men and women, the way they are. And have a high view of human nature. Um, and I don't think that Harry Potter expects that of you. You know? Probably uh, not. I mean, definitely not. Yeah, I don't know. But it definitely aged with its audience. She understood that, that aspect. Part, yes, that uh, was good. Therefore, yes, that part was good. Therefore, you know, like, it was right to go in the dark direction. And it made sense from the story because it's like this world-sweeping epic that they're literally fighting for wizard kind and muggle kind. Well, intriguingly, um, I remember when I, I watched this movie yeah. feeling that it was the best of the adaptations. Uh, that it was the best adaptation of a book. I remember feeling that way when I watched it in the theater. And watching it now, I still think that there's some truth to that, primarily for the things you said. The noir stuff is really interesting. Um, it, mm-hmm. But it loses the thing that I've said in other episodes makes Harry Potter interesting, which is its connection to school and, like, the experience of being in school and a teenager. Like, it really sort of loses yeah, that. that's what captivated our yeah, attention. Yeah, that's mostly gone in this film. It's not gone in the books, but it's yes. definitely gone in the film. Uh, right, because yeah, even in um, Order of the Phoenix, it's all about the fucking owls, <laughs> the tests, you know? right? The, yes. the tests that they did, you know. Of and it's just like, ooh, who's gonna get a five and who's gonna get a four, <laughs> you know? Like, and we're all we're we're hard for that shit. I would, but, uh, we I ride would or die. be thrilled to listen to you give a narrator commentary <laughs> on the on the book. Just read the book and just hear your read fucking comments. Ooh, the, the owls. owls. Oh. <laughs> oh, Harry's using a number two pencil. Our tests are built around birds. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking fuck. Yeah, all I'm here to say is that if you ever ask the question, why does why does this all look the same? You know, around 2007, and you know the preceding years and the years right. after, it's the tools. But the tools are tools. The look and the feel of films in the general got shaped by the darker appetites of the audience, which meant we came to expect saturated, desaturated lower chroma well, looks. Fun. And it was penned by people like Mann and Fincher for adult films, and Yates, to his credit, bridged the gap from a child story to a young he adult story. He did do story. that. Uh, filmmakers are sort of obligated by virtue of like kind of tech, tech Darwinism to use new tech mm-hmm. whenever they can. Like they basically have to do that. Uh, it's a good crutch for people who are looking for a voice. I've always thought that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've used that in my career. I was like, okay, let's use these tools and the democracy of these tools. I'm gonna make a uh, you know a career for myself. Uh, Why? Because DSLRs here stay. So I think you're right about that. You know, we can make films I, with I, them. 
And I think that that's a lot of filmmakers. Well, I think filmmakers have to be ambitious and also like they almost have to violate a little bit of their common sense in order to make the kind of advancements that this film makes. Like in some ways I feel like Mm -hmm. David Yates has to say to himself, like I got to push this further than it feels like it should go for it to really get that dark vibe that I want to get attention. At least I find that when I make, when, when I make visual strokes that people notice and feel something about, it's usually because they've gone further than I, than my caution tells me to go. Uh, because you want it, you want people to notice kind of how right, smart of course, you are. Right, you of know, how Who doesn't? I thought, I thought this thing, I thought there was resonance about these two ideas meeting and making a film combining this was yeah. clever and served the story. Uh, did you see it? <laughs> did you see you that? See that? <laughs> did you see that? And then everyone goes, yeah, yeah. Cool. in fact, we saw it too much. And then you go, ah, fuck, I fucked it up. I'm, ah, yeah, exactly. Fuck. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's what being a filmmaker it, is right. sometimes. I, uh, other times you nail it and you're like, ooh, baby. I, I did you, ooh, baby. so I mentioned the movie Clute earlier, uh, when I intruded so rudely on your, on your spiel. Sure, so sure. I, yeah, what do you got? <laughs> first of all, I just love bringing it up because I know you don't care. Uh, it's my favorite. Yeah. So there's that. But also, uh, Clute is an interesting example of a movie that's trying to innovate from, like, it, like, it takes some, like, visual risks for like creative reasons and they're interest like they're cool but they don't add up to memorable movie uh and like mm-hmm. i i my deep fear is that even if i was ever given a real chance to make movies which i hope desperately someday is hap- happens to me uh that i would end up making something like clute which i i think is a good movie but i just like it's sort of right. a it doesn't drill into your brain the way that like say Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince does in terms of its style choices because Harry's making like very bold maybe sometimes aggressively bold decisions stylistically and Clute's making intelligent careful scaled decisions and they and they're creative mm-hmm. but it's also like yeah nobody's ever going to notice that man you know that's that, it's very subtle yeah that's my fear is make is is not embracing the boldness enough that's what the B stands for in subtle. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of uh, speaking of Donald Sutherland, have you seen Don't Look Now? I have not seen that. Oh, uh, you need to fucking get some Sutherland in my life. Yeah, dude. Oh, that movie rips, okay. dude. <laughs> wow, that's a new one. Rips. I think you'll like it. I'm gonna, I think I'll rip like that it. through. I'll rip it down in front of my eyes. Oh yeah, you will. <laughs> yeah. You'll rip, rip that, that rip. I'll rip that ripper. Get high on that rip. <laughs> Our, well, that's that's all I me- meant to say. I like it. I like it. I hey, I, uh, I could hear more about this. Thanks for I listening. Could hear more about this uh, period that you've identified. Yeah, I think there's more to talk about, but I just wanted to approach it from the tools and the zeitgeist. I think there's a lot to be said about why film noir had its and still is infecting uh i say infecting like it's a bad thing uh it's still relevant noir is first of all my favorite movie type it's the movie type that i gravitate to when i write or want to make something the most um Mm -hmm. and it's it's something that can only exist in cinema 
that's kind of the joy of it. Uh, like certainly mm-hmm. the stories can exist outside of cinema, but the feeling of a noir film is unique to that art form uh, because things don't look the way they look in noir films, but they, but they do capture feelings we all have. Um, it's fun to watch movies that shouldn't yes. be noir films, be them <laughs> like this one. Yeah. Uh, even though it's in its DNA. Yeah, definitely. It didn't in its have DNA. to be. It's just it didn't sneaky. have to be though. Right. Well, it didn't have to be shot in this way, like other right. neo-noirs right. of the time. But Correct. it was. And now here we are. Talking about it. <laughs> Talking about it. And uh, yeah, it's it's kind of silly. Like, I always think that we're silly. Well, you're right about that. But it there's 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 a wizard behind the curtain. There's it, It's not a person, but it's like uh, there's reasons for why these things were decided. And uh, being availed of, you know, why or having theories as to why, uh, I think is, I think that's like being an informed moviegoer, you know, because then you can watch a movie that is just like, oh, you're just doing a rote examination of that. There's not really originality in this. You're just doing that. And that's fine. But I'm not going to like lose my shit over it because there's another film that did that already. And in fact, did it better or whatnot. But uh, when you see it, you see it. And sometimes when it's done masterfully, like a lot of these filmmakers are doing pretty masterful work in each of their, you know, respective, you know, films. But um, Yates does both gets credit. I give him credit for a lot of like he had a he, he and the Harry Potter team had a good vision of what these films should be and how they fit together. And I think that they owed a lot of credit for that, but there will always be the part of me that looks at that and says, yeah, but you're just like copying and pasting things from that and that. And you know, there's the whole adage about like good, right. Good writing is stealing kind of thing. Um, and I think that, you know, there's something to both of that. It, both things can be true. I mean, yeah, I I don't hate on. I think it's kind of a bold decision to do this adaptation this way. Uh, I yeah, I mean it. It definitely feels like it's not out of place, but it definitely it's is a big, big choice. choice. Uh, it, 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 especially if you go back, and like, like watch the first Harry Potter, then watch this. You're like, whoa. Uh, what the fuck happened to Harry Potter? You know, it'll be like it's. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah exactly right. Uh, you're like. You're, we should have a serpentine Harry should, Potter well, night. One, eight, two, seven, three. I'm going to say what we should do. <laughs> we should just clip out all the Alan Rickman moments and just watch them all in a row because they're all incredible. Oh, oh, <laughs> yeah, he's just—it's <laughs> just a series. Well, Potter. he's really like. There's a line in this movie where somebody gives him a really stupid ass excuse for something they did, and he just repeats it. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like God. He owns these kids. He just fucking owns these kids. God, love yeah, to really see do. it. You love, love to, see, to it. see these rat-faced kids just getting owned by Rickman's <laughs> just blunt sarcasm. Yeah. You thought better, oh, did you? Man, if only Alan Rickman was Ace Ventura. God, I know, dude. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you even? For that reference, you need to look at the episode about Ace Ventura. <laughs> 
fuck me up, dude. That shit, I let too hard. You like got me too much with that episode, man. I'm glad you enjoyed like, it. Like I, uh, I had to shut down and like I wasn't listening to you for a while because I, I was just like enamored with the thought of yeah, Tommy yeah, Lee you Jones were thrilled. and I, I, You did a good five minute detour. In that one. I, I enjoyed that. Jesus. You might have to edit maniac. it. That's how big of a what mess have you it done? is. You broke me. <laughs> you broke me. I do sometimes when I'm writing my episodes, think like, is there a way to set up Abe? <laughs> is there a way, there a way yeah, to some, let him have some joy? Him up. Uh, I gotta get in there with the jokes. That's right. <sighs> yep. Well, that's Great a sad. Let's not waste any more of these good nah. people's time. No. Thanks for sticking yeah. around. Enjoy movies. <laughs> That's our tagline, right? <laughs> That's direct to piece theater. Been, Enjoy movies. Couple of jackasses. <laughs> and you can't see me, but I'm I'm thumbs up. I'm giving right. a big thumbs up. Enjoy. A grin. Movies. You can't tell if it's laughing at you or with you. That's old Abe. Who knows? Abe doesn't. <laughs> I'm a crazy. <laughs> This has been a Small Beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you!